0: Do I love the moment by moment or do I love what I'm hoping the outcome will be? That's a question I'm asking myself constantly.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Dallas Taylor. Dallas is a professional sound designer and the host of the award-winning podcast, 20,000 Hertz, a lovingly crafted show that explores the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. If you've yet to listen, I highly encourage you to add it to your queue. Each episode is a joyful and fascinating little vacation into the world of sound that will leave you listening to the world around you in richer detail. The podcast won Best Production and Sound Design at the 2022 Ambi Awards, the Oscars of Podcasting, and it was the People's Voice winner for Science and Education podcast at the 2020 Webby Awards, which honor excellence on the internet. In addition to 20,000 Hertz, Dallas is also the founder and creative director of DeFacto Sound, where he's led thousands of high-profile projects ranging from blockbuster trailers and advertising campaigns to Sundance award-winning films and major television series. Just to give you an idea, in 2021, DeFacto worked on more than 800 Netflix trailers, including for the mega-hits Squid Game and Ozark and more than 100 HBO trailers for such programs as Game of Thrones and Harry Potter Return to Hogwarts. A self-described sound evangelist, Dallas is a sought-after speaker at conferences, a regular contributor to major publications, and a respected thought leader on the narrative power of sound. He's also a genuinely warm, interesting, and thoughtful person with a powerful story. I could have talked to him for hours. Here's Dallas.
0: I'm Dallas Taylor, and I work in the cloud. And I'm a sound designer and podcast host of a lovingly crafted podcast called 20,000 Hertz.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: I always like to learn how you got to be the you that you are today by going back to the you that you were. Can you talk to me about what it was like growing up and what your hometown, your family dynamic, things that made impressions on you as a child?
0: I grew up in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side. So in and around Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, So a very poor area. I didn't really have a super close-knit family. They worked a lot to provide. And uh, I wasn't really great at anything in school in particular at the time. I didn't gravitate toward grammar or writing or history or math or anything. But when I was in sixth grade, I learned of band. And I went in and I tried percussion because that sounded fun and then I tried the French horn, which I adored and I still adore, but eventually landed on the trumpet. And when that was really the turning point in my life into this whole world of music and sound, because miraculously, and I have no idea why, I was extremely good at it. And it was the way that I expressed myself was through that trumpet.
1: Can we unpack that a little bit? Because I think it's amazing that you've found your love of sound in sixth grade. That's a nice, you know, formative year to find it and be able to work on it. But what was it like to sort of surprise yourself with being a trumpet prodigy, like with a talent you didn't even realize you had that grew so quickly, not saying you didn't work at it, but because it came to you in such a fluid and intense way, what was that like? And did it feel like you were swept up in a river
0: at the time, I, I really didn't know what to think about it at that age. I've spent the rest of my life really analyzing that moment. And I think even today, I'm discovering what was happening in my mind then. I remember, maybe it was first, second, third grade, taking some sort of how do you learn test in school. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, that I was a very strong aural learner, which means through the ears. Yeah. I always had difficulty reading text, and I still do today. And so most of the way that I consume information is through my ears and conversation. Mm-hmm. And that must have something to do with it, because uh, I've always had this very strong sense of of hearing and uh, emotion toward music. I listened to such a huge, wide range of types of music, and I did at the time, too. And it felt... Like it was this thing that I didn't have to um, speak to really communicate. Mm, yeah, what I felt because I was very quiet, like very shy kid. I didn't talk a lot. I remember that was like this outlet where it was so encouraged to feel music and perform it, and it and it was and it wasn't something that I was like a like demeaned for it or anything. It was like in in this really poor tiny small town of Hughes, Arkansas, somehow I had a band director who just absolutely just loved music and and just encouraged me in these really uh, incredible ways and went out of her way to nurture me in that. And at the time, I just didn't know what was happening. But then looking back, uh, it's so clear how many people in my life saw that little spark it was really special. At the time, I was very aloof. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just remember being really good at it, enjoying it. I didn't have any nerves or anything. It came to me very comfortably. All of my friendships revolved around band. Uh, all of my after-school activities, and that just led all the way through middle school into high school. I was involved in in all region and all state, and met all these kids from all over the state that were, you know, very like-minded. And ultimately, that was the thing that took me into college.
1: Yes. Yes. So being so good at the trumpet was your ticket out of that small town. Absolutely. As an oral learner, did you also find like there was an embodied piece of playing the trumpet that really resonated with you? Like the coordination of breath and finger movement and like an athlete, did that sort of come to you in a way that felt organic and natural and...
0: Definitely once I started in high school and started to perform at a much higher level, I've always been really fascinated with classical music. And it like tied me in a way to history and understanding what was going on at the time in order to play these pieces. I definitely miss the times of just that non-verbal thought that's just all in sound and performance and like playing a trumpet solo of some like, Stravinsky piece over this big orchestra. It's just this feeling of like camaraderie and just this inner outer body experience of enjoying this music from hundreds of years ago. And for sure, there's just like physical resonance between brain and body and breath and vibrations. Yeah. I know that sounds very kind of over the top, but I think anybody who's ever been in band or choir or any sort of musical aspect can understand that just like it's bigger than yourself by a long shot.
1: I think even if somebody's not a musician, but they've been to a concert that really resonated with them, and they've been in a space with other people vibing all together in syncopation and in synergy with the instruments, but also with the collective energy of the space. It's quite intense, and I think one of the highs of being a human.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah.
1: So the trumpet was... Not only something that you were gifted at, but it was also a a kind of road to college and a social avenue and a way for people to invest in you that I'm sure felt good, but it puts a lot of pressure on you, too, in a way that you might feel responsible for not letting them down after they've invested in you.
0: That idea of people relying on me didn't catch up with me until my third year of college. I had a new trumpet teacher come in and uh, we, were, we were making changes to the way that I played, we're kicking off pictures at an exhibition, uh, which is this really famous piece that starts out with like, and it just keeps going and going and going. It's not even a hard piece. It's, it's something that I think any trumpet player can play. But the pressure of the trajectory that I was going on thinking, okay, I've got to play this in a symphony hall with a lot of people watching, with all of my peers. And you know, as I'm going up the ranks in college, all of the performers are getting better and better and better. So when I'm in middle school, the the gap between me and everyone else is so much that I didn't feel nerves. But as that gap got closer and closer, I started to realize how serious everyone was taking it and that a simple, at least in my mind, like a simple fracking of a note or nerves kind of getting a little bit too high, I started to realize, oh, I'm just, I'm kind of right on the bleeding edge of disappointing people. And if you think about the muscles in your lips and around your lips, they're so tiny and they're so sensitive and they're just so easily manipulated Anything you feel comes right out of this bell in a very loud way. And so in my third year of college, something I was struggling with, I remember going to the doctor and and talking about, you know, this is creeping up. And not really getting a lot of help for that. And then there was a concert where we were opening a new hall. It was like this multi-million dollar beautiful facility at the school. It was the Wind Symphony, which was always my favorite place. And I was in the middle of a concert and I had a big solo were just me for like a good chunk of time. Uh, not too challenging, but about a minute before it happened, I started sweating profusely. And um, the, the second chair trumpet player, very supportive, she kind of leans over and she'd never done this before. And she was like, do you need for me to take this solo? She had never played it. She had never put it, done it in rehearsal, but she saw something physical was happening. I'm sure I went white, sweating profusely. All of that culminated in that moment. And I totally botched the solo. At the time, I didn't know what happened. Later on, I realized it was a panic attack. From that moment, I could not shake that performance nerves.
1: Oh, that's crushing. I've had one full-blown panic attack in my life, and it's completely, it arrests your whole system. And after you have one, then there's the fear of having another that in and of itself is sort of exponential. So if you couldn't shake the nerves, how did that affect you? And, and it robbed you of the joy of playing, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. So the, the hardest thing was that my entire identity was in, in the trumpet. Everyone expected me to go get a master's degree at Northwestern or some sort of big trumpet school. I expected that. Everyone was continuing to nurture me. They didn't have a picture into the struggles that I was having. Yeah, It got so bad that I couldn't play a single note when we were going around the room tuning. And I remember just the fear of just me playing just like an open C on the trumpet, which isn't as easy as it gets. I was just struggling with this crippling anxiety. And so it was a very quick turn there in the like last year and a half of school where I was trying to f- check all the boxes. I know I'm a good performer, but I can't be in a performance situation where these teeny tiny muscles give me away. And so I was trying to figure out what can I do to get around that? And at the time I thought a lot about it, composing, music, or conducting. And so that's kind of where it started right before I pivoted into audio.
1: I am worried about the anxious part of you that wasn't getting enough help. Because you mentioned that you had went to see somebody and it didn't seem like they were able to help you. Did that sort of crystallize in your brain as, okay, well, this isn't an option. Like, I'm not going to get over this, so I have to go around it?
0: I was much more at the time in panic mode. Okay. I was newly married. With the trumpet playing, I knew that there was a path to band directing or or teaching or something. But there re- it, it went so suddenly from joy into dread every time I picked up the horn, that I had to figure something out differently. And I remember at the time, computers were becoming much more uh, capable of creating some level of music. And I remember this program called Fruity Loops, where you could make like beats and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was so fun to do that. And that opened up a whole world of like computer music making. And I loved that. So somehow kind of made it through that last year and a half with anxiety. And I got an internship pointing a camera at a news anchor for a news station. And the only reason I even did that because I had no interest in being a camera person, I knew that there must be an audio person within 50 yards of that camera. And it was the best shot that I had. So I went and did this immediately, you know, in hopes that the audio person would take me under their wing. He did. He was, he was lovely. I think just uh, anytime an audio person uh, sees another person, who has this interest and this joy in their eyes of, of learning about that I think most people want to help and and really like that was my start simultaneously I was going to recording school just like a summer course where I could just learn about like the basics of signal flow and wires and physics things okay which side note I learned more about the physics of sound in my first couple of days of recording school than I did in all of music school, which is shocking. I think way more effort should be spent in like the physics of sound and how it works in music school, because there's so many aspects of how that influences how you perform.
1: Do you want to elaborate on that?
0: Yeah. Tell me about it. One of the biggest things I remember thinking a lot about is like, why is it that I can play it at at pretty much the same volume with the entire orchestra or or wind band playing and blend into the overall sound of the orchestra? Mm -hmm. But... I can play a solo over the top of the orchestra at a similar volume. And what I had learned in in recording school was that you know, if you're a trumpet player, if you're any any like instrumentalist playing a solo, what you do to your mouth and your body is you're kind of EQing and brightening your sound because, you know, if you think about being in a in a large room at say a party, what do we do with our voices to try to cut over everyone? You make it higher pitched, you make it kind of tinny sounding and thin to really cut over everyone. That's why your voice hurts after you attend an event like that. So that's what was happening with the trumpet is like I was essentially shaping my, you know, the mechanisms of my throat and my mouth to brighten the horn sound to where it could cut over the symphony.
1: Oh, interesting. And that's just something you sort of do intuitively, like you would in a conversation, but it wasn't really talked about or deconstructed in music school? Not at all. Fascinating.
0: Even just the idea of like A440, like what does the 440 mean? It means, you know, 440 hertz, which is a frequency. And all of this stuff seems so relevant to music school, but there's a huge gulf between performance and physics, let alone the huge gulf between the things that no one talks about. And that's performance anxiety. Yeah. When I've talked about this before, it is shocking how many musicians come out and go, I struggle with this too, but I've never told anyone. It's like a thing that musicians, I, I think to a certain extent, are worried to talk about because it instills fear maybe in themselves and the people around them. But for me, I needed to talk through that to understand like how I'm going into it, what the audience is there for. I remember thinking a lot that the audience was was waiting for me to fail, which is a complete false like lie I t- I told myself.
1: But I think all people that go into public speaking, like there is this idea of like they're just waiting for me to make a mistake or to flub my lines or but that's not it at all. Audiences like they want to like you and they're they want to hear what you have to say or hear what you have to play and we can get so sabotage of ourselves <laughs> when we listen to those voices.
0: The audience is cheering you on. Yeah. They, they love you. And even if you make a mistake, they still love you and they still understand where you're coming from. It's not an emotionless crowd. It's a crowd that all understand like the humanity and the passion. That And, you know, if you make a mistake, they know that and they don't want to. Yeah. No one's being cynical about it. Everyone's there to enjoy. Same thing with public speaking. It took a long time to like kind of unpack what the relationship is between an audience. And some level of performer.
1: Thank you for sharing that kind of challenging situation. I mean, when we deviated into the physics of sound, you were telling me about how you did a hard pivot into conducting, but then went and did an internship operating a camera for live newscasters specifically so that you could get near the sound operator and work with them. So that turned into something clearly, because here you are now. Can you talk to me about? that early phase of your career and how you created the path that you're on now?
0: When I went to recording school, there were two paths you could take. You could take the music path and kind of become a pop producer or a hip hop producer or, you know, rock producer or something like that. Or you could take the post-production audio path. And when I went there, I was 100% music. That's everything I loved. But when I got there and I saw the culture of music recording, I did not like it. It felt more performative. Like you had to be an like a like an, uh, an artist and have a persona unto yourself as a producer in order to do the job. And I'm much more reserved and, and I guess like more of like a scientist and a tinkerer and I want to ask questions and I want to figure things out. But it felt to me like it was much more of this like, we're going to come in the studio and we're all just going to be like who is the coolest in the room. And I'm sure there's there's producers and things that are not like that. So I just felt like a com- a complete fish out of water, especially coming out of classical music into this world. I almost had to like mold myself into the personality of the artists and I didn't love that. Okay. But meanwhile, I look over here to post production and it was like all these like sciency, engineering, creative, reserved People and I was like, okay, that's that's definitely me. And so I I immediately kind of pivoted. I was like, I'm post production audio sound design. I learned very quickly about the influence of sound and movies and TV shows and commercials. And it was like I realized like sound design is the magic behind all of this. You don't see it, you know. When you when you're thinking about a magic trick, it's like you're projecting this beautiful thing to the audience with your hands or whatever. Mm -hmm. But all the dirty work is happening behind those hands like you're you're doing so much um sleight of hand and hiding little things that if someone's behind you they see all the dirty work and that's what the way i felt about sound it was like it's extremely flashy but no one pays attention to it for the most part yet it has such a huge influence and i loved the hidden nature of it that's so overt and out there so that was it so i i needed to do really anything i could do to make my path to most likely Los Angeles, where all of this stuff was happening.
1: Okay. But
0: I didn't know how to get there because at this time I was in Texas pointing a camera at a news person. <laughs> okay. But what I loved about that is that it felt like performing when I did live TV. That's what I started doing. You know, I was I was prepping, I was plugging in cables, I was micing, you know, the the news people. Then, you know, the, this 30-minute segment would come up for the news and it was all live. And it felt like I did performing in a symphony. It's I'm in sync with the director and the t- technical director and the stage manager and the anchors and I'm getting mic checks for people out in the field. I'm talking to producers. I'm I'm doing so many things, but the difference was is that when my hands shook cuz they did, I just took my fingers off the faders and no one could hear it. Right. And so that was something that I remember feeling so so good about. It's like I could be nervous, I could shake, but like all I had to do was just let go and it would all be fine. So that led me out to LA where I started doing news. uh, I started doing entertainment shows, shows where like celebrities would talk about their latest projects, where I was micing them up and still doing a lot of mixing live before I went to post-production.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time, so mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. For context, this would have been like 2005-ish?
0: Roughly, yeah. 2004-ish, 2005-ish.
1: Okay. So this is the era of tons and tons of cable channels, but pre-streaming. Yes.
0: Right. That's what took me out to LA. Uh, Funny enough, my very first job in audio, and I adored it, was doing live news for Telemundo. And I don't speak any Spanish. (laughs) And it was so fun. I met so many incredible people. I miss them dearly. But luckily, all of the anchors spoke just absolutely crystal clear Spanish, and I could follow the teleprompter. And so that is the job that took me from Texas, because at the time NBC had bought Telemundo. I got that job because I didn't need another person at at the NBC station, even though I eventually kind of filled in. But then that took me to LA. I was at the NBC studios in Burbank at the time, meaning the studio next door to Telemundo was Days of Our Lives. The studios on the other side was Access Hollywood, Jay Leno all kinds of these shows. And then like that was the spark where I started meeting people that then shot me over into post audio.
1: Ah, okay. Yeah. I was living in LA at that time, actually working in TV as well, but we were in different aspects of the industry. That's exciting though, that you enjoyed Telemundo so much and that you had such a wonderful sort of landing spot in LA because LA is not always friendly to People who are getting accustomed to it. But so you had this great landing spot and it shot you over into post production. And how did you find your bearings and your chops in post production?
0: Well, at Telemundo, there's this wonderful graphics person named Vanessa who also worked at a network called G4, which uh, was a video game network way before its time. It was incredible and very sound designy, very fun, very new, very fresh feeling. And they covered mostly video game content. And she went over there cause she was working on shows like attack of the show and X play. And I think she knew someone who was in post audio and we just had a lot of lunches and dinners together working on the news side. And I remember just telling her that. And she, she kind of vouched for me. She, uh, she went over there and met one of the post-production people and, and they were like, does he know post audio? And she was like, Oh yeah, he's the best at that. And I was like, <laughs> and she told me that. And I was like, okay. I mean, I was practicing on my little computer in my apartment, but I was not ready for prime time on that. And so I, I went over there, I interviewed, I faked it until I made it that first week. I was, I don't know how much I slept because I was just trying to catch up. And at the time I didn't realize like the extreme level of crunch they were putting people through. We were remixing entire 30 minute shows in like four hours Oh, God. We were doing promos in an hour or two with a lot of sound design. It was just like white knuckle, crazy. But I also felt like that's kind of the, the best place to start because once I started my other jobs past that, it felt so much more methodical. And then again, it was yet another audio person who kind of took me under their wing. I, I'd have to ask him if he knew this at the time, but I've, I've you know I think imposter syndrome and, and being embarrassed about it. But I wonder if he knew that I was struggling. Because it was like a week of like nonstop like crunching for finals, day, night practice, you know, absorbing information, panic because I finally got my shot. And then by week two, it's like I got it, and I was like in the rotation, and then within the first month, I, I felt like I was uh, very good at it.
1: You have a sort of track record of taking to things and then getting really good at them quickly.:
0: I definitely strive very aggressively for precision all of my formative years was trying to perform something to perfection in a practice room to where I could do it 90% of the way in front of people. One of the reasons I pivoted was because one of the phrases I heard a lot as a musician was your best performance will be in a practice room. And that's what I couldn't accept. I don't like that. So I knew like one of the motivations for post-production was like when I put my heart and soul and effort and every little nuance of frequencies and dynamic range and creativity, once I printed that stereo or 5.1 mix, like it stays stuck. Then it's up to, you know, speakers and stuff to actually reproduce it properly. But that's out of my control. And I was fine with that. Okay. So that was a huge motivation of why sound design and post-production was a huge draw to me.
1: Do you think this strive for perfection can get out of hand? Like, I think that I had some serious perfectionism and caused myself some creative trauma that I'm probably still processing. Do you think you may have done the same to yourself?
0: Absolutely. I think about that a lot, yeah. accepting myself for who I am, you know, feeling very comfortable with being on the right path versus the destination. You know, a big thing I think about a lot is, do I love the moment by moment or do I love what I'm hoping the outcome will be? And so that's a, that's a question I'm asking myself constantly because it has to be in every aspect of my life. I need to love the like moment by moment, the interactions with people and really have a love for the craft, not when we publish a thing.
1: I like that you've gotten to a place where you're really focused on you gotta love the day to day. And now the proprietor of your own sound design studio, de facto sound. Yeah.
0: So after G4, I, I became a full time senior sound designer mixer at the Discovery Channel. Mm-hmm. And I saw from being an in house, uh, I saw that uh, most of the coolest, most creative projects went external. Okay. So I started de facto sound, doing a lot of discovery work that then led to all kinds of car spots and films and documentaries that win Sundance and trailers and ads and and all kinds of stuff. It was it's a blast. I love it. That started I think it was around 2009. So I was still like fairly young at the time when I started a business. Kind of started as just me project managing and sound designing and taking all that in and then hiring like one person and then another person and then just like a slow progression. And so now we are 15 years into it.
1: Yeah, that's pretty solid.
0: You know, we still feel terrified all the time, uh, hoping that, <laughs> that people still need things to sound good.
1: You know what? I'm so relieved to hear that. <laughs> I'm so relieved <laughs> to hear that. I still feel terrified all the time
0: too. Especially like as cable TV seems to be just crumbling in front of us.
1: Yes, but you seem to have also gotten in good with the streamers and brands that need advertising. So are you feeling the effects of cable crumbling underneath you?
0: So this is really where 20,000 Hertz comes in. Because I ran de facto for about seven, eight years before I started making a podcast. Mm -hmm. And the podcast was trying to solve a lot of problems. One, I felt like generally speaking, I would work with such incredible groups. I mean, many of them were just incredible and they, they appreciated what sound brought to the table. But in a many cases, too many cases, it was a, I always felt this idea of just like, okay, oh, that's a cute sound designer that you have ideas. Now scoot along and let the visual people take over from here. Like I felt very like you're not a creative, you're like a technician. And like sound design is very creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much more like a designer or a motion designer than a technician or an engineer. And so there was that aspect of it. Two, in my business, there's there's times where we just don't have anything on the schedule. And so I wanted to make something that when I'm stressed about trying to bring in work, my team is actually the opposite. They're like enjoying, they're creating a thing together. There's no boss. There's no client. We're just trying to tell people about what we love and what we talk about internally into this podcast form. And I loved radio That was when I was devouring 99% Invisible, especially every single sound show that Roman did. And then Radiolab was just in this incredible moment in time. Mm -hmm. And then This American Life. So like those three things I was listening to all the time while I'm building this sound design studio. And a lot of people didn't think of audio only being this very creative outlet, but I saw it happening. And Roman and I became friends early on in 99PI because I believe his first episode was about sound. So immediately I'm hooked. I think maybe 10 episodes in, I was out in San Francisco and I was like, Roman, I just got to meet you. And he was gracious and he's super cool. and He's so kind. And we just kept in touch over the years. And I never wanted to touch anything that would step on 99PI's toes. Um, But over time, like 99PI built its identity on read the plaque and architecture. And I noticed the sound shows would get a little bit few and far in between. Mm -hmm. But I kind of thought, you know, would it be bad to be like, hey, Roman, I kind of want to make a show that's kind of like all your sound shows, but just every show is that. He was like, oh, yeah, of course, go ahead. Like, I felt like I was going to step on his toes more than anything. I think he was more like, go do it.
1: I think Roman probably instinctively knew that you know the more quality stories that we're putting out in this format the more we're lifting the whole thing up
0: right and so that really blossomed because that that's actually how Twenty Thousand hertz got its start where we spent a year making our first two episodes and they were barely 10 minutes the first one was on the voice of siri the second one was on the on the nbc chimes which for me like the nbc chimes was something that uh, i wanted to tell because i worked at nbc and i understood this yeah and i bumped into roman like third coast and right after we put out the second episode i bumped into him he was so encouraging and he's like can i play this episode next week on 99pi and then it just the whole stats just hockey sticked and then it was just like solidified very quickly and then um, after 10 episodes advertisers started to reach out and then it it was incredibly hard to keep the momentum but we kind of made it through these first i don't know 30 40 50 and then we kind of landed into some sort of stride and it started paying for itself very break even and then other opportunities kind of fell from the sky <laughs> and here we are.
1: Yes. Okay, but you're you're much more than 30 40 50 episodes in now. You're 200-ish?
0: Approaching that, yeah.
1: Congratulations. Thanks. You know, you describe yourself as a sound evangelist. So, on some level, it's got to feel very satisfying to have created a very profound body of work that does a public service in terms of helping people just understand the importance of sound and to also tune in to all the places in their lives where sound actually plays a deeper role than they may be considering. I know for me, that's one of the things I deeply love about your podcast is that it makes the world a richer place when you're listening for all of these mysteries. And when you decode some of those mysteries, then you listen even more carefully because you understand how it matters and how it impacts you. And so anyway, thank you. I love it. And I recently listened to the 150th episode, which you call breathe. It was a collaboration with meditative story podcast. It described your performance anxiety challenges And it was such a beautifully crafted story and so exquisitely human that it moved me to tears. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I am interested from a creative process standpoint how that collaboration came together and what it was like for you as a kind of private person to reveal yourself so candidly to
0: an open public. So to to paint the picture in the show... I'm not the star. Uh, the star of the show is the sound or the concept. and so i'm've I've always tried to make sure that that's out front because it's all about the sound itself. And so we've done one hundred and forty nine episodes where I'm not the star. I'm the narrator, I'm the guide. And then I meet the people from meditative story and uh, they said, oh, we need to you know collaborate in some way. you know we have spark and fire, we have this, we have meditative story and i was like oh yeah meditative story how do you how do you kick those off and they're like is has there been a point in your life where everything changed and everything pivoted and then i just immediately launched in for maybe 20 30 minutes solid about that that story about the performance anxiety and so that was really the start of realizing that like other people cared and wanted to give something to me and to other people because the story itself really Resonates with with tons of people, um, musicians and not. I still get emails all the time about that specific moment. When I meet people in real life, most of the time they they bring up that episode in particular. And it was something that it was somewhat strategic because I was like, I didn't, I don't want to talk about myself or like I want to delay that as long as possible. So 150 episodes in was when it, when I finally um, put that out there. Because I, th- I felt like it would be more powerful. Like, I'm not the star. I'm not the star. I'm not the star. Okay, I'm going to put this here. And it's deeply personal. Like, who is this voice that doesn't ever talk about themselves? I, I definitely felt like something clicked in my head in a bunch of ways. Uh, love. I-, I think that's like, when, when when I'm working with another podcast, Like there's this aspect of economics to it, too. Like they have an audience, I have an audience. We want to trade. We want to make sure that like everyone loves like each other's work and and all that. But when things work so perfectly in this situation, it was way more than like a swap. Like these people genuinely cared about the story and you could see it in every word that they said. And so I felt like when I read that script, I felt an, an immense amount of love from the writers directly that they heard me.
1: Wow, being heard.
0: And I think being heard is such a gift. Let someone speak and let them be heard. Like and 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 I think that's that's one of the biggest things I, I learned is like listening is an act of love. And they did that for me.
1: Listening is an act of love. I 100% agree with that. I also think more of us need to be heard than we are even really aware of or conscious entirely conscious of. I mean, one of the reasons I started this podcast is I feel like creatives frequently only get talked to about their output and they don't get talked to about their whole humanity and who they are. I personally feel like when we connect through the human to the output, then we connect more deeply. And if we can connect to the humans who built the world around us, then we can connect more deeply to the world around us, and we can be more intentional about how that world starts to take its shape. And so your vulnerability in that episode also felt to me like an a way in that opens the door for somebody to sort of like really get to your humanity in a way that is like okay this is lovable i can i can see this person now
0: everything you just said was very lovely that's not the way that i necessarily thought about it i just remember going i struggle with this deeply i suspect other people deal with this too mm-hmm When I meet people that I don't know and they know me so deeply, it's endearing. It's loving. It's always a shock. I think that's the thing is like the the influence that the show has had. And, you know, I might be thinking too much about this. It's still, you know, it's not the biggest podcast in the world. I'm not Ira Glass. I'm not Roman. But still, when I go to a conference or something, and I, I see this all the time, where I'll pass someone, I see them glance at my badge or something. I see them like flush with just like fanboyism, like that I used to do. And then they just like gallop over to me, like on their <laughs> tiptoes and, and just like say, Oh, I, I love your show. And they're trying to like, get all of this emotion out so quickly. And it's so sweet and it's so loving. And I love it every time it happens. And it, it, it feels so loving. I think that right now I just feel like such a flood of love from people. And I'm just trying to process that based off of all of this history that I've had.
1: Yeah. Do you struggle receiving love?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So how are you working with yourself to open up and actually soak it in?
0: (laughs) Well, uh, I'm a big believer in cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, talking it out. You know, I think talking to a therapist is great. uh, If you don't have opportunities to or, or trusted people who will listen for long periods of time and let you get it out. I think that's a big part of my life is just having people or a therapist or someone who will listen 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 because at some point the more you talk with someone and especially if they're like giving you that time to just speak it all out what I find is in the over the course of about a 45 minute long arc of something that I'm struggling with speaking to another Caring person, even if they're new doing no talking, I usually find my way and find the the issue myself, and then they're just nudging me there. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I think people with very functional, healthy family relationships already know this, and it's some. Or maybe it's just something that's built into them. But it took me into adulthood to really find that outlet. And for me, it was it was therapy for sure.
1: I mean, if you suffered panic attacks, I'm guessing you're an internalizer. I'm definitely an internalizer. And I also learned the same thing you did that. I mean, some people journal, some people get it out in other ways, but by getting it outside of your brain, you almost can see it Mm -hmm. and you can start to work with it and, and find your own solution.
0: Yeah. We're social beings and we need another person. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing, the other biggest thing in my life that like really shifted the way that I think from that internalizing is physical activity, Mm. running, lifting weights. I don't do it necessarily for the physical appearance. I do it because all of that anxiety is bundled up and, you know, sitting in my gut. But if I run or if I lift a heavy weight, I become present. Nothing makes me more present like physical exhaustion. And I've learned that that is such a positive feeling. I feel human when I'm exhausted, when my heart rate is up, when I'm sweating. And it really comes down to, the more, the more I think about it, is like it requires being full present. You can't exit your body when you're like breathing heavy and like trying to catch your breath. And you are there for like 45 minutes to an hour. And then, you know, breath. And I've always, you know, even that, that, that episode was called Breathe. And so much about the breath is like incorporated into that and hearing my breath and hearing life and hearing hearing this stuff. I think that like when I'm sitting in front of a, a computer, you know, a low heart rate and I don't hear my breath and I'm just like getting sucked into this void of Internet and all of this, I, I'm not present. And I need that outlet to just be me and like feel me. And I, I do work out with other people, too, in a group class. And I think just uh, it feels like that communal Performing together, we're all huffing and you know just trying to get through it. But I love it; it makes me feel so good.
1: How long have you been doing this consistently?
0: Two and yeah. a half years.
1: Two and a half years. Nice, nice. Are there any other tools for for living that have you found really helpful? You already mentioned CBT and physical exercise, but
0: making sure I'm scheduling time with friends and family, devoted time, because I work, work, work. And it's easy for me to just like get sucked into the vortex of oh there's this other thing I need to do or this other thought, but being with people, you know, it's like I think if anyone thinks of a great conversation that you had with someone and how good you feel when you walk away from that, you had a good time with your best friend or anyone, that little mechanism of that that satisfaction is a critical part of being human, and I, I I've come to realize more recently that that is something I have to carve out and make time for and text my friend and pick up the phone, not only for them, but for me massively and being proactive about that. So that's, that's something that, um, the the longer I go without communicating with people and just in my own bubble, Mm -hmm. the more that anxiety starts to creep back. And that's generally when I have a panic attack, which I probably have one or two a year.
1: Okay. And it sounds like you've gotten very self-aware about the conditions that sort of make you ripe for having one so you can work with yourself being unhealthy yeah okay
0: bad food putting bad chemicals in the body you know drinking not having physical activity not talking to people like all of these things just all start to add up yeah and one by one i've attempted to shed every single one of those uh, because really it's like all of that is masking something else And it's scary to go back to just who you are. Like, what are you trying to mask? But like, I've got to confront it. I've got to understand it. I've got to communicate it. And when I communicate it and I confront it, it's always there. But like, I feel, you know, like a big chapter turn at that point. Nice. (laughs) I had no idea that this conversation was going to, I thought I was going to be like, oh, the sound of windows. So this is a very cool.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I I totally am. And- I hope
0: people want to hear my podcast after this because it's not. It's it, you know. There's a couple deeper episodes, and I try to weave a little bit of that like you know deep stuff. But it's so different. But I but I love talking about this stuff. It's just, uh, you know my public persona is very much like sound designer, sound, sound, sound. But deeply, I I want to I want to care for people because really, twenty thousand hertz is all about helping people to feel more human through their sense of hearing. Mm -hmm. We do this well with our other senses. We're very visual creatures and I love visuals, but we all have like a sense of style and it makes us feel a certain way. And you don't have to be like an expert in visuals or a designer in order to design your home or know what colors you like for the paint colors with a sense of smell. Like you don't have to be an expert in how that works in order to like, enjoy the smell of lavender or a perfume or something like that but with the sense of hearing we're pretty far behind those other senses societally it's kind of like relegated to like a mystery wizard audiophile in a dark room who like don't poke the bear and like they know all about sound and no one else does and my whole mission with twenty thousand hertz is to let everyone know that there is no mysticism behind sound. It is right there and it is just as accessible as all four of those other senses. And you can feel more deeply and ultimately become more human by opening up and becoming more conscious about that.
1: Thank you. I also don't want people to feel like the podcast, it's too serious when it really is a joyful listen. But I do appreciate When you talk about yourself humanly, I feel like your passion comes through and I feel like passion is contagious. So I always really love to hear people's stories in their own words for that reason. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. So I, my background is in furniture design, but so I think about the built world all the time. And one of the things that I'm like particularly frustrated by is the way that we've been so unintentional about like the acoustics of our city and the noise pollution and how all of our machines and, and, um, leaf blowers, but even our buildings are clad with things that I'm sure make sound even worse. And so it seems to me if we just got more intentional about it, we could actually be so like live in places where the sound is actually so much more harmonious with our physicality, with our humanity.
0: I have so many thoughts on this. So we'll talk about interior than exterior. Yeah. So interior, everything is pushed so much toward minimalism and hard surfaces that these environments sound so bad. Like they're so reverby. But if you if you ever go to like a 3 Michelin star restaurant, like part of it is like you have to make sure that it's intimate and that I can talk at this level and you hear the other you have an intimate conversation. Yeah. Because you know, if you're going out with someone, there's so much nuance to the voice and if you're having to yell, like so much of that is lost, some of that connection is lost. So in in great restaurants or in in homes, uh, gosh, like when there's a lot of fabric, which you can do so much with color you can do so much with like the thickness of the fabric. We think about this all the time in our house mm-hmm. because I want the, the space to feel so intimate. Meanwhile, I can go to another space that looks great for Instagram or something, but it's just cacophonous.
1: Oh, I hate it so much.
0: And so I, I think my hope is that through making this thing and getting normal people in tune with their sense of hearing, they'll start to notice more of these things. And as you notice these things, then you start making design choices based off of that. And so for us, we love the look of a wood floor or, um, I don't know, drapes, things like that. But like we we make sure that we pick very like thick rugs, very plushy furniture. I think we even have like these very textured types of um, soft types of artwork. Home just sent, feels so much more just like a warm hug. Place when it's very intimate, yeah. Uh, from the sound, and then there's other places I'll go that's like very cacophonous, very loud, very hard, surfacey, where it just doesn't feel friendly. It's cold because of the sound, but most people don't realize that. And so uh, I'm hoping that the trend of minimalism and this open office design and all of this stuff really pivots in the other direction with with um, yeah. fabric texture. I think that color will come with that because you that then opens up that whole door to that aspect. So, I think that you know restaurants in and of themselves are just um can be nightmarish with sound in general with just so much reverb and stuff, but I also know that like it's difficult to have tablecloths everywhere or fabric because people spill things and all of this, but there are there are a lot of places that try and then externally, you know, I always think of Manhattan when I'm thinking of a city, yeah, will it get quieter i mean gosh i've I've heard rumors or thoughts or ambitious plans to to remove cars from Manhattan, which I think would be incredible to give people more space to move around subways, you know, whatever um, electric things walking more green space. Cause that, that, that city sure, sure needs it. Cars are really what make up most of that noise. I don't really even mind the sound of chatter and people talking and someone yelling over here and someone kind of, oh, you know, yeah, laughing no, over here.
1: That's not the problem. Yeah. It's the, mach- it's like the machines and the anti-human sounds.
0: And just honks. And like the yeah. honk sound itself is so aggressive. It's, it's, there is no like nuance between like, you know, hey, you know, just want to make sure you saw that light. And yeah. I want to, I hate you. <laughs> like, there's no nuance between the two of those. So it's just like, it's just like these sounds that are just like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, like constantly in New York City. And I think that that energy kind of like, can can be contagious. But imagine a world where like, you know, you, the cars are out of of Manhattan. You then have much more space for like mass transit, more walkable. I assume that you'd probably get a lot more vegetation in the middle, which would gosh, be such a huge bonus for that city. Yeah. And that vegetation itself, more trees, like anything that's just textured from those hard surfaces is just going to soak up sound. So there's certainly a world where like downtowns and cities could be incredibly sounding places, but we either need to Step one is if everything was electric, but the problem with that is, like, at a certain, I think it's 22 miles an hour and below, you by law have to have a sound for pedestrians, which makes sense. There's a there's a thing with motorcycles that says says like loud pipe saves saves lives.
1: Oh yeah,
0: and with cars too. So if we have Manhattan and we have a lo- electric cars, we're gonna have a lot of like whirring. Right, like it'll be a different sound, like whirs and like spaceships and still honks because we know that that's gonna be the case there. If you remove them entirely, oh, it's it's a whole new world. But I think that people are just going to get to a breaking point. Like there's so much stimulation. And I'm hoping people, at least through the podcast or through speaking, start to understand that like you can turn all that noise down and, and become like much more calm just by kind of eliminating the racket that's happening all the time.
1: One thing that we didn't talk about that I did want to ask you about was during the whole like... 2020, 2021, 22 like void of the pandemic. You also did a TED main stage talk, virtual, but you did a TED talk and that's
0: mm-hmm.
1: not only is that performance, but that's a really cool talk about John Cage's 433, which is really more about silence than it is about sound, but through silence you sort of get to the sound that you were always hearing but not paying attention to.
0: Yeah. I love that you brought this up because it's one of my favorites. So first I will say I was with the history of panic attacks. Um, you know, I've, I've found ways to public speak. I do public speak a lot. Now I know kind of how to get through that, but I was petrified when Ted asked me to be a main stage speaker. Cause I, I saw the red dot. I saw the people, I saw the cameras. I see all the views on their site and on YouTube. I knew what I was going to talk about. I knew it would be very popular because it's an amazing concept. But oof, I was. uh, But it's one of those things that, like, when an opportunity like that hits the inbox, it's like I have to accept before I think because I can't. Like, I've got all those other things need to be worked out. So I accepted it. Unfortunately, the pandemic happened. Fortunately, that became something that I could set up my office and do remotely. And so it was. I, I feel like I I did a main stage talk. And the only way I felt like I could do it, and that was scripted to camera. I think I read it three times in a row, and then we edited it. And so um, I felt amazing about that. But then on the other side felt, you know, oh, my goodness, like I didn't really do the stage thing. But that's okay, because I felt like it was it was it made sense, because it was about silence. And I knew that before the pandemic even happened, that it was going to be on silence. And so so many serendipitous things happened, where it's like, okay, this is entirely appropriate. And so why that was such an important topic to me is because I remember in music school, John Cage was kind of a joke in a way because people didn't understand him. And so this futuristic, this experimental type of music, it was always like kind of flippant in the way that people talked about John Cage. As time went by, I started to think more and more, gosh, what was John K Why would 433, who would do a something that sounds so academic to a point? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. And so the more I looked into 433, which is a three movement piece where it's, it's a minute or two of uh, just someone who will sit down at a piano, open the piano, close it. And then it's another kind of middle piece uh, for some amount of time, open the piano, close it third piece. My interpretation is you can really perform that any way you want. It doesn't have to be at a piano or anything. I performed it uh, myself at a conference two months before the pandemic. I I did like a performance piece where I talked about John Cage and everything, and then we then performed it at the end. And I felt like it was really powerful because everyone knew exactly what John Cage was thinking. Whereas most of the time people don't. And that was part of what John Cage was, was trying to do is like, do something so outlandish that people had to think on it and just keep thinking on it. I mean, for me, it took me decades for me to even know what he was trying to say in that. And I was flippant and whatever, like, oh, the silent piece, ha ha ha. You know, students in school will perform it and everyone's kind of like, oh, this is hilarious. But the deep meaning of this is exactly the mission of 20,000 Hertz. It's that when you attempt silence you become more conscious of all the sounds that are actually happening. So when you're, when, you know, 433 is performing, you know, someone's sitting in the audience going, Oh no, I have to cough. Like, Oh, I have to sniffle. Oh, you hear the car outside. You hear the birds outside. You hear someone shift in their seat. All that is the point because that feeling of like, everyone's nervous because we think we need to be quiet. What the reality is, is that silence is unattainable, entirely unattainable. And so, It forces you, and something that I encourage people all the time, to to just flip the switch of consciousness on hearing and just and anyone can do it at any point, and just go, I'm gonna just channel all of my thoughts through my ears. Like I'm gonna become conscious about every little thing I'm hearing. Like right now, I'm I'm listening and I hear a plane going overhead. Had I not become conscious about that, my brain will tune that out entirely. And that's that's what our brains do is they it just tunes things out but when you become conscious, you start to hear everything. And for me, it, it can become very intoxicating when you really kind of like focus all of your energy through your ears. And you can practice this in so many different ways. And I think then it shows like more of an appreciation of sound. And, and just to, just to, you know, for anyone who, who's unaware of like silence is not attainable. The air around us is just transmitting so many sounds, unless you're in like a, anechoic chamber which i've been in before which is um testing rooms where it's like every bit of sound is entirely removed but even in the anechoic chamber where there is no sound happening you can't get away from sound because you hear your heartbeat you hear your breathing i had a recorder with me because i was recording a podcast i could hear the internal mechanics of the recorder it was It was profound and so so many things uh like in that environment like really solidified like it is you know for anyone who has hearing silence is virtually impossible to have and so john cage being like a composer was trying to say that like all sound is worth it like unto itself like sound is just a is something that we can tune into and just become more human and that's what resonated with me. And once I realized that what John Cage was saying in this kind of joke piece is exactly the mission of my podcast, like that's where the collision course happened in the aha moment. And I wanted to tell everybody about it.
1: Awesome. Well, we're glad that you did. <laughs> it's it's definitely a wonderful talk. And it's nice to enjoy. I, you're in your space and there is a kind of comfort exuding from you, but also a, a real and mean this in the best possible way, a real nerdy passion about the subject matter.
0: <laughs> I hope so.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. So, I mean, I would like to know if there's anything about your story that we haven't covered that you think should be revealed.
0: I love the question because it's the last question we always ask you. In podcast form, it's so good because usually what happens, and I'm doing it right now as I lean back and I try to think of everything in my life, And then oftentimes, and I'm not going to guarantee I do this, somebody will then like summarize something so beautifully. Now I'm so conscious of it. So I know I'm fourth walling really badly right now. (laughs) Sound doesn't have to be overly academic. My favorite sounds in the world are hearing my kids laugh or sing or talk to me or my friends' voices or my family's voices and just people that I love. And, um... For me, I wish I would have taken time to interview some of the people who have passed that I love just to hear that intimacy in their voice again. I wish I would have saved more voicemails because so much comes back just through that, that, that hearing their voice and, and there's so much beauty in the human voice. There's so much music in the human voice and we can practice it and, and you can hear it from other people. That's something I think about a lot is I just love the sound of humans and their voices. And there's so much love and not love and performance even even in that. So I think people think, oh, I'm not a musician. But if you even speak out loud, you're performing uh, all the time. And so embrace it and listen more deeply.
1: I've loved listening to you. Every word. It's been really, really beautiful. Thank you so much, Dallas.
0: Well, thank you. And the, the last thing I will say is go subscribe to the podcast. It's very, <laughs> it's very fun. It's very it's, fun. Uh, there's some introspection, but it's uh, we try to make it in a way that's a joy. It's entirely focused on sound or a sound being the star of the show. I want to focus all of that effort into listening, becoming more human, and uh, most of the time, uh, deep joy.
1: It is felt, and it is an escape, and it, it also feels nutritious at the same time. So congratulations on that. And we will make sure to include a link to subscribe in the show notes and in the description of this so people can get
0: there easily. Thanks. Well, this was so fun.
1: Hey, thanks so much for listening. For a transcript of this episode and more about Dallas, including links to his work in 20,000 Hertz and a bonus Q&A, head to cleverpodcast.com. If you like Clever, there are a number of ways you can support us. Share clever with your friends, leave us a five-star rating or a kind review, support our sponsors, or hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app so that our new episodes will turn up in your feed. We'd love to hear from you on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. I mean, X. You can find us at clever Podcast and you can find me at Amy Devers. Please stay tuned for upcoming announcements and bonus content. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cleverpodcast.com to make sure you don't miss a thing. Clever is hosted and produced by me, Amy Devers, with editing by Mark Zerowinski, production assistance from Ilana Nevins and Anushka Stefan, and music by L1011. Clever is a proud member of the Surround Podcast Network. Visit surroundpodcasts.com to discover more of the architecture and design industry's premier shows.
0: And even if you make a mistake, they still love you and they still understand where you're coming from.